Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The philosopher George Santayana wrote, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The importance of learning from history and how it informs the present is central to our program today. Later this hour, we'll hear from the artist Lava Thomas. Her works in the exhibition Homecoming, on view now at the Spelman Museum of Fine Art, examine layers of history, both personal and global. First, together with its role in world history, the Holocaust has been the subject of literature, film, theater, music, and art. Now there's a new PBS series, The U.S. and the Holocaust, a three-part documentary directed and produced by Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, and Sarah Botstein. The PBS series will air on WABE-TV over three nights, beginning this Sunday, September 18th. Joining me now via Zoom are co-directors and producers, Sarah Botstein and Lynn Novick. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. How does this series extend our understanding of the tragedy that was the Holocaust? Well, we were interested, along with Ken Burns, our partner and collaborator, and Jeffrey C. Ward, our writer and our team of producers, in exploring questions that we did not know the answers to. And those were, what was America's response to the Holocaust, to Hitler's rise to power, to the persecution of the Jewish people of Europe as it was unfolding? And to get at that question, we had to find out what actually happened in Europe and how did Americans find out about it over those years? You know, what did we know? How did we know it? When did we know it? And what did we do in response to that knowledge? And it took us many years to unpack all of those questions. And it became an exploration both of the events of the Holocaust, the catastrophic humanitarian crisis that unfolded as the persecution of the Jewish people of Europe gained, you know, power and strength, 
and people were trying to get out and whether America was willing to be a nation of refuge and asylum for the oppressed or not. And sadly, uh, we discovered, you know, although we did admit many people, we could have admitted many, many more. The title immediately reveals the documentary's perspective, and it was inspired in part by the exhibition Americans and the Holocaust at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. When did you decide to take on this project? So thank you for asking about that. We feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to work as closely with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington as we did. They approached us in 2015 when they were in the early stages of their exhibition. And then we began to really go into full-fledged production on our side in 2018. And throughout this making the series worked very closely with their archivists, their scholars, the educational Department of the Holocaust Museum and feel very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with them. How long did it take you to complete the six-hour series? We really began full-scale production in 2018, so that's four years ago. That's when we began working on the script and conducting interviews with witnesses, survivors, and historians, and doing the archival research. Hmm. The Diary of Anne Frank is said to have put a face on the Holocaust. Why does the story of her father, Otto Frank, provide a similar role in this documentary? I think arguably many, 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 many people's entry to this subject matter is her extraordinary diary. And when we set out to begin research on the film, it came to our attention that Otto Frank had tried to get his family to the United States, a fact that Lynn, Jeff, Ken, myself, we didn't know, and suddenly made her feel much more relevant and important to an exploration of the U.S. response to the Holocaust, because if Otto Frank had succeeded in getting Anne Frank, her sister, and his wife and family here, as Lynn often says, Anne Frank could very well be alive today. So I think it will be surprising to American audiences that her family tried to get here. And then once we made the decision to explore that thread, we were able to think about Anne Frank and explore the diary and get to know her in some different ways, which I won't give away on this interview, but we were fortunate enough to interview a young woman who met Anne Frank in Amsterdam and was hidden in the same network of houses and has a very interesting story that ties her back to Anne Frank at the end of the war. So we really, once we started with that idea, it became a very, very, very interesting and exciting part of the project for us to to think about her in a different context. There are frightening parallels between descriptions of behaviors and events beginning 90-plus years ago and the present. How does the rise of fascism in Europe, Nazism in particular, mirror recent history in the United States? Well, we tried to stay focused in this project on telling the story of what happened then, And we let the audience, for the most part, sort of recognize the parallels and the echoes. 
you know, but they are undeniable and unmistakable. And we're living in, as we say, often frightening times. And some of the most concerning parallels have to do with a kind of mainstreaming of hate speech and bigotry and dehumanizing of people. You know, with Hitler and the Nazis, they were targeting Jews in particular, but many other groups. We see that same dynamic playing out in our society today and around the world in Europe as well, of how immigrants are described and people who are considered other and treated as less than human and not welcomed into democratic societies. And we're also seeing a kind of just general trend toward authoritarianism. It's a word I have trouble saying. And, you know, it's 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 disturbing to think about what that means in a democracy that you can have propaganda being repeated over and over again, just complete falsehoods, lies. And the more often they're said, they sort of slide into the realm of people believe things that are absolutely not true and did not happen. We see violence, actual violence perpetrated against the democratic system and the threat of violence. And we have a kind of mob mentality that people feel aggrieved and other people are scapegoated. And that kind of adds fuel to the fire. And so we're seeing a lot of the ingredients that were at play in the 30s, you know, very present in our life today. And it's quite concerning. Among the harrowing comments from Hitler that we hear in this series were references to Jim Crow laws and citing the U.S. as a role model for taking land from the original peoples in the Western expansion of America. What Was that a discovery for you? Well, I think I'll speak for myself. This is Sarah. Again, when we started to make the film and we're doing research about how to start the film, when we would when in American history would start the film and then thinking about the rise of Hitler and his inspiration, we became aware of the fact that as he was coming to power, he did look to American history and how we handled the Native American displacement and murder and the Jim Crow laws and the segregation in the United States. And so while it's very, very important, and we've all made sure to make clear that Americans were not responsible in any way for the Holocaust and, you know, were terrific saviors in the Second World War in many, many ways, Hitler's drawing on American failures, experiences, racism at home as he moved east, just the way we had moved west, was an important piece for us to include in the film. You include a chilling quote from North Carolina Senator Robert Reynolds. In 1941, he said, if it were up to him, he'd build a wall around the U.S. and hunt down illegal immigrants. Yeah. How finely polished is that mirror from 1941 and the echo of events in recent years. One of the central tensions in our society and American history and in our film is, you know, whether we are in fact a nation of immigrants as the Statue of Liberty represents, 
or whether we would like to build a wall and keep the other people who we don't want here, whoever we decide those people are, just keep them out. And we got a much deeper understanding of those tensions and how that dynamic is at play in our history and in our society to this day. And, you know, we sort of start the clock for us in the 19th century with the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was the first time that we passed a law to restrict immigration and to keep out people of from China. And that was just purely a bigoted racist impulse that, you know, the idea was that people from Asia, especially the Chinese, didn't belong here. And that escalated and escalated until 1924 when Congress passed something called the Johnson-Reed Act, which we learned more about in making this film. There had been mostly open borders before that, and millions of people had come here from Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, and they were changing the, the nature of the country, we think, for the better. But at the time, it was very disputed whether it was good for America to have people coming here who, quote, weren't you know, like us. And us in that context was, just to be very direct about it, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And, you know, after the Johnson-Reed Act was passed, strict quotas were set up for every country, minimizing the numbers of people who could come from largely Catholic Southern Europe and from largely Jewish and Catholic Eastern Europe. And that, that was deliberate. That was done with great purpose. And so when Senator Reynolds is saying that in 1940-41. It's because there's a refugee crisis happening because of Hitler's rise to power, because of Nazi persecution. There's millions of people who are trying to get out of Europe. Many of them, most of them are Jewish. And he's being quite explicit that we don't want those kinds of immigrants coming to America. And he, he's speaking to a country that is nodding its head at that time. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with filmmakers Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein. We've been discussing their new Ken Burns documentary series, The U.S. and the Holocaust. First-person stories of survivors and witnesses are interwoven with the historical presentation. The survivors' stories had tremendous emotional impact and bring us into the unfolding events. How did you locate and decide which people to include? Uh, we found each of them in different and similar ways. We worked very closely with the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum to find some of them. We found some of them because we were looking for a specific angle. Gunter, who later becomes Guy Stern, came when he was slightly older and then fought with the Americans in the war. And we were interested in a story like that. For this film, we really feel very, very privileged to get to know the families and the people people who were children then. And Lynn has talked a lot about this, you know, interviewing people who were children at the time when the events took place was somewhat different for us. And so you're dealing with childhood memory, childhood trauma, childhood events. And then again, as Lynn has eloquently talked about imagining if you are older and a parent or a grandparent, the decisions you would have made, and then hearing about those decisions through a child's memory was how we put those interviews together in the film. I had seen Gunter Guy Stern 
in the 60 Minutes segment on Richie's voice. Yes. And marveled at his presence of mind. The others who appear in your series also must be in their 90s, and they're lucid for any age. They're all in great shape and an inspiration. In a film with a large cast of villains, members of the U.S. State Department could be included among them. What were some revelations you had while making this documentary? I think to varying degrees, we had some sense that the State Department was a place where the effort to keep people from getting here was centered because they controlled the visa process. And you had to have a visa to come here and there were quotas for every country and there were certain regulations about what you needed to get a visa. You had to prove that you wouldn't be a dependent on the government. You had to show that you didn't have a criminal record. You had to get letters of support and, you know, a whole lot of paperwork. And as Sarah always says, this is a film about paperwork. And the State Department, not only did they follow the letter of the law, they sort of went above and beyond to make it harder, partly out of, in some cases, just overt anti-Semitism and, and nativism. And in some cases, for some people, perhaps, you know, a fear of the possibility that refugees might become spies for Nazi Germany, which was a very faint possibility, but it justified a lot of the effort to keep people out. You know, there wasn't a huge public outcry among the the nation to say to the government or the State Department, you have to, you know, open our doors. To me, the most terrifying villain that we came across really is Charles Lindbergh, the aviator, because, you know, I, right, I, I knew he had been sort of, um, brought down a peg for saying some anti-Semitic things at a when he gave a speech in 1941. But we went back and listened to his earlier speeches when he first became, you know, very vocal to speak to the American public about staying out of the war that was brewing in Europe. And he had been quite admiring of a lot of things about Nazi Germany. His wife openly admired Adolf Hitler. They'd spent time there in the mid-30s. They'd thought about moving there you know, and they, they didn't, they decided not to do that after Kristallnacht. But nonetheless, when he speaks, he's talking quite explicitly about how we have to defend the white race and, you know, sort of explicitly and implicitly saying a lot of racist and anti-Semitic things. And he is hugely popular at the time. It reminded me of the Philip Roth book. Mm, yeah. The Plot Against America. The Plot America, Against America. was pretty scary fiction. And to think that he was also such a, a hero, such a popular hero for what he did as a pilot. Right. Well, we tend to put people up on pedestals for all kinds of reasons. They can do something on an athletic field or some feat that really, you know, he was a great pilot. We don't want to take that away from him. It didn't give him any particular great perspective on foreign affairs or military, you know, might or things like that. But he was a child of the Midwest and he, the background he came from, this kind of um, eugenics, white supremacist, racist, anti-Semitic ideas, I think we have to say, you know, really hit home with him, struck a chord with him. And he had a way of talking about these things with great confidence. And the American people, a lot of Americans applauded. And we have in the film a quote that FDR privately said he thought Lindbergh was a Nazi. So we have to deal with that too. 
There's still airports named after him, you know? This is true, and streets, and yes, all kinds of adulation. With all that is brought out in the series, now what we know about Breckenridge Long and some of the other State Department officials, do you think that the criticism of Franklin Roosevelt in more recent decades, holding him accountable for not doing enough. Do you think that may diminish after these discoveries you made? Well, we'll see, won't we? You know, what we tried to do was present a more nuanced picture and let people decide for themselves. And we really think it's important not to just blame Roosevelt for everything. And we hope that that sort of more complicated look at all of our collective responsibility will get through. But Roosevelt still, as the president, There's no doubt he could have done more, but it might have been at a cost in ways that we can't anticipate that might have set the the larger cause back. So I think it's good for us as Americans and for our viewers to just reflect about all of that. There are heroes you cite, righteous Gentiles, as they have been called. Most famously, the Swedish diplomat Raoul Wallenberg. And you introduce names not as well-known, Varian Fry, Jan Karski, and John Paley. Is it possible to summarize their achievements? Thank you so much for bringing up the, that wonderful cast of characters and bright spots in this film. You know, each of them did different heroic things at different times and figured out ways to both get around the bureaucracy and the paperwork and the complicated dynamics of getting here. On the one hand, people like Varian Fry and Hiram Bingham Jr. and the Sharps and the beautiful scene about them in the second episode. John Paley is a great hero of the government working out of the Treasury Department. The War Refugee Board is a great way to think about how once we really had a much better sense of what was going on and millions of Jews had already died, there was a big population of Hungarian Jews left and we were able to help them get out. And that's a a great moment of American help. And Jan Karski, of course, worked for the Polish underground and got information to the United States and around the world. So we feel lucky to have included those stories. And I think each of them are a different example of how we could have done more. And also inspiration for reading more and learning more about them. I thank you for that. I don't know if you saw the New York Times, but there was a feature, a play about a one-man show about Jan Karski. The actor David Straithorn is portraying him. Did you see it? I have heard about that project and I cannot wait to see it. And I think the idea that people will learn more about Jan Karski is is a terrific, a terrific thing. You know, I think one of the questions we've been asked a lot is what what is our takeaway from having made this film? And for me, it's individuals can do incredible things. And it's very important in a democracy to have an active role and to exercise your right and privilege to vote. And I think 
I'm always surprised at how few people in America vote. And I wish that were different. And I hope that this film might inspire people to get more involved in their local school board election, their local towns, political council, and not just vote every four years. And even every four years, our numbers are, I think, frighteningly low. So one way to save a democracy is to participate in it more fully. Yes. This series also covers the importance of journalist Dorothy Thompson and the activist Laura Margolis. Sarah, what kind of educational outreach material will be available from PBS? So we are working very closely with the whole PBS infrastructure, which is an incredible network of stations around the country to work with local communities, libraries, synagogues, churches, community centers. And then we are doing even bigger for us. We always do educational outreach. We always make lesson plans. There's always the Ken Burns classroom on PBS Learning Media. But for this film, we spent the better part of the last couple of years working very, very closely with teachers, the Holocaust Museum, Echoes and Reflections, Facing History, different organizations that primarily figure out ways to teach this period in history and connect it with things that are happening in the present. And we are really hoping that those lesson plans will be useful to teachers and that we have materials that will ignite conversations with all different kinds of people across the country. Sarah, I read that your parents lost most of their relatives to the Holocaust. Oh, thank you. Yes. Several of the people on the film are Jewish. Many of us are not. We have many varied voices, which I think is terrific. We all like to think about history from different perspectives and different backgrounds. On my father's side, I'm a first-generation American. My father's family got here thanks to the extraordinary work of Hyas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. My great-grandparents were able to get to Mexico City thanks to the Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. So on my father's side, I have a lot of history here and many of my relatives were killed and others got out through different means. I wish my grandparents were alive to see the film. I guess I was also wondering what effect it had on you to be immersed in this horrific material over a long period of time. I mean, nightmares. Very, very sad, very frightening time in history, I think also gave us energy because it felt so urgently important and the world around us was changing while we were making it. And that gave us the, I think, strength and energy to to make the film. Finally, in the film, the historian and the special envoy, Deborah Lipstadt, says, tyrants will go as far as you let them. What are your hopes for the impact of this series? Deborah Lipstadt is one of the more extraordinary people we've ever been privileged to interview, get to know, work with. She has some of the most important things to say in the film. She also sends, you know, how can we learn from the past? Where did we go wrong? How can we do better? So I think, again, the privilege to work in a democracy. And as Ken has said, the time to save a democracy is before it crumbles. So I think it's a warning sign that we need to protect what is the privilege to live in a democracy. Documentary filmmakers Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein. The new Ken Burns PBS series, The U.S. and the Holocaust, 
will air on WABE-TV over three nights, beginning Sunday, September 18th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, artist Lava Thomas explains layers of history in her new exhibition, Homecoming. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The contemporary visual artist Lava Thomas centers her work around black history, both personal as well as national. Her pieces are inspired by visibility, healing, and empowerment in the face of Erasure. Thomas's new exhibition, Homecoming at the Spelman Museum of Fine Art, focuses on very lifelike pencil drawn portraits. Homecoming brings together three different bodies of her work for the first time in one show, spanning nearly a decade of drawings. Lava Thomas joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. One of the three collections on view in Homecoming is your series Mugshot Portraits, Women of the Montgomery Bus Boycott. The historic boycott in question came as a response to the arrest of Rosa Parks. Many people know the legendary civil rights activist Rosa Parks, but who are some of the other women you drew in this collection? One of the women, Joanne Robinson, actually initiated the Montgomery bus boycott. She was an English professor at Alabama State College and also president of the Women's Political Council. After Rosa Parks was arrested, she and two associates mimeographed over 50,000 handbills. And she did this at the college where she worked, risking her job. They distributed those handbills all over Black Montgomery in churches, 
barber shops, beauty shops, stores. And that one day boycott was so successful that all of Black Montgomery came together and decided to extend the boycott and elected Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to be the leader of it. How did you encounter these particular mugshots? I was doing research on another project, actually, about activism in American women when I came upon mugshots of well-dressed women and men that were a part of the group of the famous mugshot with Rosa Parks. And I was immediately struck by the fact that I didn't know who these other people were. And when I started digging into the Montgomery bus boycott, I found Joanne Robinson's memoir, The Montgomery Bus Boycott and the Women Who Started It. And that was really invaluable in my research. The women as well as men leaders of the Montgomery Bus Boycott were arrested in February of 1956. Rosa Parks was arrested in December and the boycott started immediately after that. And Black Montgomerians, not only did they not ride the bus, you have to remember this was during the Christmas holidays, they didn't shop in downtown Montgomery. So not only did the bus company lose revenue, stores and shops in Montgomery that were expecting that revenue from Christmas shopping lost millions of dollars of revenue. And that incensed the white community in Montgomery. And so there was a little known law against boycotting that was invoked to arrest the leaders of the Montgomery bus boycott. And I chose a mugshots in particular because I wanted to transform the moment that the women were being criminalized by the photographer that was taking their mugshot portrait. I wanted to transform that mugshot into a site of honor and commemoration and tell the story of their bravery and their sacrifice at that moment. You achieved it. Your style of portraiture here is immediately engaging. These are pencil drawings, incredibly detailed. Would you talk about the process and your approach to rendering these intimate portraits? Yes, the mugshots themselves, many of them are out of focus, and some of them also have stains and tears from age. But I wanted to create something that would really capture the individuality and the emotions of the women. I chose to draw the portraits instead of creating paintings because we all have experience with pencil on paper. So in that way, the medium of it is accessible, but it's also a metaphor for the erasability of this history. Pencil on paper is easily erased and drawings themselves require a system 
of conservation in order to preserve them. They have to be framed. They have to be kept out of direct sunlight. And they also have to be kept in a temperature controlled environment. So that entire support system for conservation really speaks to the way that this history must be preserved. And my technique, which is uh, the accumulation of literally thousands of pencil strokes shows labor over time, but also, as you mentioned, the care with which I approach the portrait, which I want to convey the level of respect, admiration, and reverence that I have for each of the women. Why did you focus on the women solely? I focused on the women because their stories have largely been absent from the history of the Montgomery bus boycott and also from the history of the civil rights movement. When we think about the Montgomery bus boycott, we immediately think about Rosa Parks and we think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. But we don't think about Joanne Robinson. We don't think about the thousands of women who worked as domestics, who relied on the bus system to get to their jobs, but who didn't ride the bus during the course of the boycott. We don't know that it was women who initiated and organized it. And it's because of women's leadership that the Montgomery bus boycott happened and because it was successful. So important. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the artist Lava Thomas. Her new exhibition, Homecoming, is on view at the Spelman Museum of Fine Art. What was the inspiration behind looking back and seeing now? Looking back and seeing now grew out of an experience that I had many years ago. I found my grandmother's photo album while looking for sheet music. And earlier that day, I attended uh, the funeral of my best friend's mother and our families are buried in the same cemetery in Los Angeles. So after attending the funeral, I visited the grave sites of my grandmother, my mother, my great grandparents. And then afterwards went to my grandmother's house where my brother lives. And as I was searching for sheet music, my grandmother had been a church pianist and choir director. I came upon her photo album and it was a complete surprise because we had already gone through, or so we thought, all of her things after she died. So I came up on this album, which was um, obviously old. And when I opened it, it was so old, in fact, that it was literally falling apart. And the first portrait that I laid my eyes on was of a woman whose gaze was so intense that I knew immediately that I needed to build a body of work 
around that discovery and around her. So her large portrait is one of the anchors of that body of work. Mm -hmm. Would you take us through the drawings that are part of the Looking Back collection? Yes. The drawings are, there are two large scale portraits. Um, Both are six feet square of women who I believe are my ancestors, as well as two smaller portraits of women who I believe are my ancestors. And I believe that they're my ancestors because they each were in a prominent place in my grandmother's photo album. And they're drawn within a drawn oval frame to mimic the oval shape that the studio photographs employed when their photos were originally taken. And I say that I believe that they are my ancestors because there isn't anyone left alive in my family that can confirm that. The newest set of drawings is called Decatur. You mentioned you were born and raised in Los Angeles, but your family has southern roots in Decatur, Texas. There are lots of Decaturs that dot the U.S. What took you to Decatur, Texas three years ago? Three years ago, I was contacted by the Wise County Genealogical Society inviting me to a posthumous military funeral and headstone dedication that they were organizing for my great, great, great uh, maternal grandfather, Charles Arthur. Now I grew up listening to stories of Decatur, Texas from my grandmother. So I was familiar with the place through her stories, but I'd only visited there a few months earlier in 2019 when I was invited to be a visiting artist at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. And that led me to drive to Decatur to visit for the first time and to also look for some of the landmarks that my grandmother described in her stories. So when I received this invitation, I was, and it was literally out of the blue, I was surprised and delighted. And that led to research about my family. My grandmother told stories about her grandmother, my great-great-great-grandmother, who was born enslaved and who eventually settled and married my great-great-great grandfather in Decatur, Texas, but I didn't know very much about him. So as I began to research his life and especially the circumstances around the military funeral that was being organized, I learned that he served in the Civil War and upon settling in Decatur, Texas, he changed his name from William Eckler, his birth name, which was also the name of his enslaved father to Charles Arthur. So later in life, when my great-great-great-grandfather applied for his military pension, there is no record of him as Charles Arthur. So he waged an almost decade-long legal battle 
to receive his pension that generated a document archive that tells the story of his life because he had to prove that he was in fact William Eckler, the soldier. So that body of work is comprised of a full length portrait of my great great grandfather that's based on the photograph that was sent to his fellow soldiers to identify him as William Eckler, the soldier. And I've chosen 14 documents out of a document archive of over a hundred that tell the story of his life in his own words, his service and depositions from soldiers that he served with that confirm his identity. Oh, how fortunate to have those documents. In what unit did he serve? Company K, 5th U.S. Colored Infantry. Wow. How does the title of this exhibition, Homecoming, connect these three collections, Lava? Well, the title was actually chosen by the guest curator, Dr. Bridget Cooks, who is professor of art history and African-American studies at UC Irvine. It's an apt title in so many ways. That exhibition was originally shown at the Montgomery Museum of Fine Art in April of this year. And in that context, it was certainly a homecoming to have the mugshots exhibited in the city where the Montgomery bus boycott occurred. And also for the descendant families, many of whom traveled from all over the country to attend the reception, it was a homecoming for them. At Spelman, it's a homecoming in a different way. The exhibition is the first since the Spelman Museum closed due to COVID. So it serves as a a site for homecoming for the Spelman community. And for me in particular, having works that are about my own ancestors and about uh, Decatur, Texas, which is really the origin of my family formally because it's where my great, great, great grandparents were married and they were the first black couple to legally marry in that county. Um, It's like a homecoming to me. Artist Lava Thomas, her exhibition Homecoming is on view at the Spelman Museum of Fine Art through December 3rd. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, City Lights music contributor H. Johnson stops by. We'll learn about jazz harpist and composer Dorothy Ashby. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is 
City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978. As host of both blues classics and jazz classics, H. educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. He recently added City Lights music contributor to his impressive resume and joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Let's talk about unorthodox instruments played by jazz musicians. There aren't many of them. I mean, there's the African thumb piano, or the harpsichord, or the celeste, steel drums, tuba, bassoon, piccolo. You don't hear many jazz musicians performing on those instruments. But there's one particular instrument that I've only heard about three or four people play this instrument. And the first one that impressed me was a comedian by the name of Harpo Marx. Oh, here we go. Then you know what instrument it is, don't you? Yes. I saw Harpo Marx in a movie play the harp, and uh, it was so beautiful to me, seriously. It made me fall in love with the instrument. I couldn't understand how he got what he got out of it, running his hands up and down the harp the way he does, but that's the way you play a harp. And I never heard another harpist until I heard this young lady, who we're going to talk about briefly here. Her name is Dorothy Jean Ashby. Dorothy Jean Ashby from out of Detroit, Michigan, came to us in 1932. Her father was a self-taught guitarist, and he instructed her in harmony. He started her she played harp and piano. She used to give piano recitals. Bought her first harp in 1952. Her first job on harp was in Philadelphia, a club in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in 1953. That's how quickly she picked up on it. And she was uh, influenced and played with Woody Herman, Louis Armstrong, also many nightclubs in Detroit and New York City. And she's written a book on playing jazz harp and harmony for harp and cello. Swinging and tasteful performer. And she has, as a guy I once read in a book said, she plays with more jazz feeling than most harpists. I have to agree with that. Oscar Peterson likes her, Dr. Billy Taylor Duggar, George Shearing, and she has a few albums of her own out there also. But we're going to dispense with all of that and let you hear some of her. I'll tell you what, we'll take this one, Django. It's not that familiar with a lot of listeners. Everyone knows softly as in the morning sunrise or autumn leaves. But Django is a composition of John Lewis is a pianist with the Modern Jazz Quartet. He also played with Dizzy Gillespie, who was another instructor of Dorothy Ashby's prowess. So we'll do that one. We'll listen to Dorothy Ashby on harp as she plays Django. <laughs> Thank you. 
WABE's H. Johnson and our series H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. You can catch H's Blues Classics show tonight and every Friday beginning at 10 p.m. And do return for Jazz Classics every Saturday night beginning at 8 p.m. Right here on 90.1 WABE. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m. we'll hear about the upcoming Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival. Plus, the new exhibition, We Live Among You, is on view at Gallery 72, and we'll speak with two of the featured Atlanta photographers. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.